You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Nedelitsky, and today I'm thrilled to welcome Amy Green. Amy is a past teacher and school leader and is founder of The Wellness Strategy. With a background in teaching, leadership, human behaviour and positive psychology, her work is focused on improving workplace culture and wellbeing in schools and organisations. She is a speaker, facilitator, coach and author of Teacher Wellbeing, A Real Conversation for Teachers and Leaders. Amy is determined to change the way we view wellbeing to support our everyday and workplace needs and to ensure that all employees feel safe, valued and fulfilled in workplace cultures in which all staff thrive and flourish. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here. We'll start the conversation with, I suppose, a really broad question from my point of view, which is I'm wondering how did you come to this work that you're doing now on teacher and educator wellbeing? Yeah, is a great question and a broad question, but an important one because what I want to start with uh, sharing is that I didn't end up here because I don't love teaching. I actually love teaching. I love education. And I think being a teacher is one of the best professions you can have. And often there's an assumption that I must be doing this work because I burnt out or I don't like the profession or, you know, um, there's, there's something wrong with me and that led me to this work. And that's not entirely my story at all. In fact, I started talking about this and knowing that I wanted to be in this space in some capacity in 2014. So before the word wellbeing really was common language. And back in that, um, back in that time, I suppose, of my career, I was at a crossroad where it was, do I pursue leadership and become a principal? Uh, And that was the path that some of my leaders and mentors wanted for me, or do I follow this innate sense, which is actually, I want to do something different. And I know that, um, well-being is an area that I want to focus on for our educators and I set my sights on doing this but I just had no idea what it was going to look like 10 years ago I really didn't and so whilst also uh, starting to run blogs and online memberships and doing a few bits and pieces in this space I was very committed to my teaching career at the time as well and I was a leader of teaching and learning in a number of schools and that's very close to my heart how we teach how we differentiate how we support students but what became really apparent was that in roles where I was leading and working with teams, how we work has a direct correlation to our own personal and professional professional well-being. And that led me to be able to put together something, well, I suppose what I'm doing now, which really is working with individuals, but then also schools as workplaces to help them redesign and become the architects of their work setting so that it supports personal and professional well-being and also giving individuals their, their own tools. Interestingly, though, throughout that journey over the past 10 years or so, and I've only been out of the classroom full time for 12 months because I had a really challenging time leaving. I didn't I didn't want to leave. I, I loved it. I didn't want to uh, walk away. And th- I mean, I did. It's kind of a paradox. I did want to do this, but I also still want to be a teacher. And so it's, it was finding a way to could I do both? And in the end, the answer was no, I had to pick. And this just kept showing up more and more. And I know how important it is. But Throughout that journey, probably in about 2018, I did start to experience a significant amount of stress and my integrative GP described that to me as occupational stress, uh, not because of one school or one instance, but this 
uh, has had built up over a number of years because of multiple factors in my life, whether it was what I was doing personally, you know, telling myself I had to get up at 5am and subscribing to this unrealistic version of success and doing all of the right things for well-being but not actually embodying any of them and then also some work things that perhaps weren't in alignment with my values and that's absolutely okay because not every school is right for every teacher not every teacher is right for every school we have to be okay with that and that really led me to learning more about human behavior and positive psychology and how to heal and find that version of what a fulfilling life looks like but whilst also still loving the profession of being a teacher and then the more I worked in that space um, the more things started to show up and eventually I was given the opportunity to write my book which I share this in detail and was the first step of me really talking about it and um, 12 months later here we are really. A lot in there around that idea about a fulfilling life, leading a fulfilling life. And I think what I'm hearing in some of your story there is that you have followed that sense of your own purpose and what you found fulfilling. And I think that's why maybe it was hard to leave teaching because there's something really special about being part of school community and there's a real sort of moral purpose and a real fulfilment in doing the work that teachers and school leaders do. Yeah, I absolutely can relate. And You know, there are moments where I live quite close to a school so I can hear them on the playground and I hear the bell ring and I often have to take a moment and go, you know, I'd love to be a part of that. I really would. My partner's a teacher. My sister works in learning support and uh, I, I live through them a little bit because it is such a rewarding and fulfilling career. And I know right now we're in a space where perhaps the narrative around that isn't as positive and there are definitely some whether it's system issues or things in schools that we can address, you know, we, we do need to do that work, but we shouldn't be de- devaluing an amazing profession at the same time. You said something about that you were at a point at one point where you were doing the right thing but not embodying well-being. You're doing well-being things but not embodying well-being. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So think of this a bit like if you were to Google 10 things to do for your well-being or, um, you know, print out a, it's to the start of term four. So term four well-being checklists, which I've seen some of and doing them like you would a shopping list. You know, I've done mm. my meditation. I've done my exercise. Um, I've gone for a walk in the sun. I've had a mani-pedi. I've had a massage. Um, I spent time with family. So I was seeing my approach to well-being as a very task-orientated thing to do and literally like a list. I would have a list and tick it off. What I wasn't doing, and this is what I teach people now, is actually pausing and asking myself, what's my version of well-being? You know, and how do I want to feel? What person do I want to be? And doing that, you know, if I want to be someone that's calm and content, or if I want to be someone that's organized, or if I want to be someone that works, you know, hard Monday to Friday and then has their weekend spare, what do I need to do to allow that to happen? Rather than just thinking I'm going to become a marathon runner because, you know, that's what I saw someone do on Instagram or in order to have thriving well-being, I have to become a yogi because uh, we adopt these different versions that actually don't belong to us, but we're sold are the, the right thing or the answer. And in actual fact, there's no answer. There's no right thing. It, it really is about designing it in a, your, your well-being approach so that it supports you. And that's why I started the wellness strategy because it's a strategy that you have to design, you have to put together. And um, some days it looks one way and another day it could look different and it flows and it changes. And I think when I first would have told you I had everything in the right space for my well-being, I was definitely seeing it as a list of things to do. I wasn't saying what matters to me and what supports who I am. Um, it was definitely an add-on and an activity. 
I think there's probably lots of people who can relate to that idea of needing to tune into self and a sort of one size fits one approach to wellbeing. And the word pause was one that um, struck me just then. I, I was at one point a little bit more like what you were talking about, doing lots of things. I had two children under about two. Uh, I was working in a school and I was doing my PhD and I was figuring out ways in which I thought that that was all working. Uh, and I was working with a coach at one point and he said, oh, I think you need to pause. And I said, oh, yeah, I do pause and then I make my next list and then I do the next thing. He was like, okay, maybe an actual pause. And it really challenged me uh, to think about what that actually meant and that idea that sometimes we sort of are like the frog in a pot where we get to a stage where we didn't think we'd get to just one small degree at a time. So that idea about tuning into self and that this is actually something that is work, that the strategy isn't, it sounds like just something that you can lift out of. It's not a list that you give Mm. people that they can do to tick off, but actually something they need to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And I can totally relate with the pause piece. I think part of wellbeing is actually learning to rest. It's learning to do nothing. It's learning to switch off. It's learning to slow down, not as a means of recovery or because we made it to Friday or we made it to you know the end of term, but because we need to develop a certain level of self-awareness that allows us to be able to tune in and have that introspection of what is well-being to me. And if we don't slow down, we don't give ourselves space to find that. And so it's a huge uh, skill to develop. You know, I remember when I first started resting or learning to rest, I couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't sit still. I didn't know how. And I felt really unsettled and unsafe and like the world was going to end if I didn't get up and wipe the bench down or do the dishes or finish making that resource or get up and go and do something active. And what I know now is really being able to pause and slow down is actually the tool to gaining insights into how I want to feel and who I want to be. And that is the path to knowing what I need to do. And even just permission to rest, because I think a lot of people would have that guilt that if it's not something productive, like even if it's go for a massage, go for a walk, do meditation, it's, it needs to be a doing thing rather than just a being, yeah. sitting, resting, unproductive thing where there's maybe space as well. I read an article yesterday, I think, that some young people are now discovering walking without headphones and that this is a some kind of new thing. new thing, yeah. But I think that's interesting that it's challenging for people to be with their own thoughts sometimes too. It's hugely challenging and I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily related to an age group at all. Like um, I, I grew up in, the house, in a house and my TV was always on in the background. You know, my parents always had the TV on um, just for background noise and I was doing that in my early 20s when I started working and then someone said to me, why do you always have the TV on? And I was like, it's background noise. And they were like, why do you need background noise? And it didn't occur to me until then that perhaps just being in silence was something that was going to be far more valuable. And so especially now when we've got podcasts we can download and listen to while we walk or music or uh, online courses that we can tune into or reels or whatever it might be, when are we ever truly alone? When do we ever actually allow ourselves to be with our thoughts? And I think that can be really confronting and challenging because when you start to listen to that, there are perhaps things that, and this was my experience, I didn't want to know or I didn't want to pay attention to because the truth lies in that silence. And so we have to be okay and comfortable with it to recognize it so then we can we can grow or move forward or address it or take responsibility. And sometimes the noise lets us avoid that. And when you talk about teacher wellbeing, you talk about it as more than self-care and about that it's there's an individual side of wellbeing but also the collective side of wellbeing. So can you talk about in the work that you do how you have conceptualised wellbeing, especially for those working in schools? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that we know there's lots of research out there in regards to wellbeing and if you were to Google a definition or a framework, 
you can find a plethora out there. There's not one right, there's not one wrong. It's actually about asking, is this right for my context? And so what I've done is a lot of that reading and research for people. And in my book, and you can find it on my socials, uh, I talk about well-being having two lenses, everyday and workplace well-being. And our everyday well-being is what's made up of three main areas, which stem from mind, body, and soul. So mind, body, and soul, which leads into physical, mental, and emotional health. But taking it one step further uh, in my framework, what I refer to is energy and function, resilience, and emotional regulation. So of course, energy and function is our physical health, is our body. Our emotional regulation is our emotional health, which is actually our soul. And then resilience is linked to mental health, which is our mind. And so I've taken what can be quite a large concept into those three specific areas and what I do now because this was a huge part of my own healing journey as well is go into schools and support teachers to learn about these things for themselves not for their students so I'm not teaching how to um, use resilient strategies or emotional regulation to teach your students but actually for you as a as a person because many of us went to school without being taught these things you know i I'm 38 and I grew up in a house where I was told to, you know, suck up, move it on. No one needs to see you cry, bounce back, get over it. You'll be fine. And what we know now is that when we, when we have that approach, we're denying people's emotional experience, yet we're asking teachers to teach these things and they haven't been given permission, language or understanding to apply it to themselves. And this is a huge part of wellbeing. Uh, And so in our everyday aspect, we have to know, you know, what do we need for energy and to be able to function well what is it that we go to when we are being resilient and how do we engage in adaptive or maladaptive, so supportive or unsupportive strategies? And how, what are the steps to emotionally regulate as adults, but also how do we support one another to do that? And from there, what we then look at is workplace wellbeing. And workplace wellbeing is not about doing yoga or morning teas or having fruit bowls on the table or anything like that. It really is about looking at how we work so through the lens of engagement productivity and performance and growth and these three areas came out of bits and pieces of research that was done around the mass resignation through COVID and why were some workplaces keeping staff and why were some workplaces not and what was discovered was that workplaces that had staff who wanted to stay and wanted to be a part of that place and weren't looking for other jobs Uh, said that they were really productive in the work that they were doing and they had systems and structures and processes that allowed them to be productive. They felt like their time was being used well. They were also really engaged in the work that they were doing. So it had meaning and purpose and they were connected to their colleagues and positive relationships were there. But also there was an element of performance and growth. They knew what a high standard of excellence looked like in their workplace. They supported one another to perform to that standard and held each other accountable. And then they also had an aspect of growth. So they were growing in a professional sense and that really underpinned um, well that that research says that that underpins successful workplaces that have staff well-being at the forefront and so when we consider workplace well-being through a teacher lens it really is around how we're supporting staff to engage in the work that they do do we have systems structures and processes that support productivity and are we allowing people to perform and grow to a standard that is a level of excellence that we all agree to when we hold each other accountable to and I think right now there's a bit of a misunderstanding around what wellbeing is, who's responsible for what and how we approach it. And so we tend to go down the path of yoga teachers or fruit bowls or or having wellbeing clubs where we celebrate birthdays. Those things are important and essential, but in actual fact, if we want to, what we really need to be addressing are things like workload, 
Um, we need to be addressing things like team cohesion and collaboration. We need to be addressing things like competing priorities and vision, um, how we use time. And all of that is absolutely supportive of well-being and sometimes isn't necessarily identified as that. And we need to break that down. There's a lot there. <laughs> One of the things I'm hearing in terms of some of the synthesizing of it is that there's the high support, high care, but there's also kind of high challenge and a level of accountability and of growth. And I think that's maybe where sometimes it gets interesting because whether it's the yoga and the fruit bowl or the, you know, the celebrating birthdays part, we focus a lot on the connecting and the relationships and the support, which I think is really important. But but so is supporting people to grow and to to develop. And that comes sometimes with not always feeling happy and wonderful all the time. So I think there's probably something yeah. there also around, you know, if I think about students and their learning or times when students feel really proud, it's when they've been resilient or when they've learned something difficult and you sort of sit with the rigour and you sit with the discomfort and the not knowing and you work through it and it's there where you get your sense of achievement. Wellbeing is not about being happy all the time, definitely not. And it's also not about thinking, or um, staff are flat, so we better do something, or I'm not super happy in my job, so I've got to find a new one. Wellbeing is about having the tools to support us to come back to our point of what I call equilibrium. So where do you feel most balanced, content, grounded, whatever those words are for you? We're not designed as humans to be happy and ecstatic and feeling amazing all of the time. That's quite a high, intense energy, and we can't maintain that. But at the same time, we know we're not designed to be sad or unhappy or frustrated. What actually serves us is to have this contentment, this sense of self, this groundedness, because it's from this place that we make the best decisions, that we're able to be clear in our thinking, that we're able to be kind and compassionate and understand one another, that we're able to solve problems. And so well-being is not about making sure that we're happy. It's actually about knowing that we have the tools to work through life. And what you raised about students is absolutely accurate and I talk about this a lot. You know, we expect students to be resilient, to have a growth mindset, to get in the learning pit, to push through obstacles so they can grow and flourish on the other side. But we don't apply that same thinking to ourselves. And yet when we look at how we talk about well-being or a well student, we expect to see those things. And so we should be doing that for ourselves as well. We should understand that staff well-being means, hey, you know what, we're all learning and growing together. Times aren't going to be happy and pleasant all the time. It may mean having difficult conversations. It may mean having accountability and feedback. It may mean having these high standards that we're going to consider how we work towards unlearning and relearning, redesigning, letting go of how things are, but ultimately collectively we're responsible for that and it's not up to leaders to drive that agenda or leaders to fix well-being or leaders to do something about it it requires all of us to actively participate in the redesigning of our staff well-being and you talked about context because there is a workplace aspect to this and you said that your gp said to you that it was occupational stress that they had identified in you so that's relevant to you know what it is that you're doing day to day I'm wondering, first of all, in your work, if there's one of those three areas, the energy function, resilience, emotional regulation piece, are they sort of equally pro problematic for teachers or is there one of those that you have experienced to be more the thing that challenges teachers in their work? I think as simple as it sounds, and I really want to say we need to work on emotional regulation because it's true, uh, but that, that piece around energy and function is essential. And so what that includes is knowing that we have to have a certain amount of energy each day or when we arrive at each task and we have to be able to function well. 
And I mentioned earlier that this relates to physical well-being, but what people often think about when physical well-being is mentioned is I've got to diet or exercise or, you know, do yoga, eat healthy, eat salads, something like that. The purpose of prioritizing our physical well-being is so we have energy and so we can function. And that may mean that Monday through Friday on a workday, having a burger or having snacks from the bottom jaw or five chocolate biscuits from the biscuit barrel because you didn't organize what you were going to eat for lunch is actually not looking after your ability to have energy and function. On the weekend, when you're not going to be asked to teach 10-year-olds or whatever it might be that you teach, it doesn't really matter because your brain doesn't need to function in that same capacity. And so what I'm hearing a lot of when I go into schools and I start with this, and perhaps because it's the most tangible, is that when we consider the five areas that sit under energy and function, which are, which are sleep, first and foremost, do we get out somewhere between seven and nine hours a night? Um, and then nutrition. So do we know what we're eating, how it fuels our body? Is it nourishing? Water and hydration, like are we drinking enough water? Because we know there are so many things that uh, it can impact if we're dehydrated. Um, movement, so not exercise, but just daily movement can be exercise, but are you moving daily? Let's start there. And then also um, rest. <laughs> are we, and we talked about that, are we actively resting, whether that's creative rest, mental rest, emotional rest, sensory rest, whatever type of rest that might be. And so they are, even though they seem like the easiest and we hear them a lot of, and they're perhaps uh, the ones that people can grasp, are not happening. We, we don't prioritize them. We don't do them. We don't put the systems in place. We don't build the habits. We always find an excuse not to do them. And often it's because we think we don't have time or there's always something else to do. But in actual fact, if we prioritize our sleep, if we work on eating nourishing foods, if we move our body, if we drink water, and if we find moments to rest, and it can be as simple as five minutes a day, those other areas, resilience and energy and function, but also things like workload and productivity and engagement increase. And we have to be able to start somewhere and what the research tells us around well-being and health is that they are fundamental. If we are not doing those things, we actually can't do the other things well. If we're not sleeping, we can't regulate emotions because our brain isn't working well. If we're not moving our body, then we're going to have stagnant energy and it means that we may not be able to choose the right thing to do when it becomes to having to be resilient. And so to answer your question in a really long way, it it would be focusing on those areas of energy and function, but also knowing what is my number one, like is, do I need sleep? Do I need nutrition? Do I need water? Do I need rest? Do I need movement? And for me personally, I know I need sleep. If I have less than eight hours sleep a night, I just don't function well. And so that has to be my number one go-to. I dream of eight hours sleep a night. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting. The first one I thought of was the emotional regulation piece, because I think apart from there is that constant decision-making in teaching, but there's also a lot of co-regulation, emotional regulation, helping students or children to regulate. Uh, So there's lots of that emotional work or whether it's working with parents or with staff members who are going through hard times, like there's a lot of that emotional piece. But I hear what you're saying is that if you're taking care of your kind of, you know, physical, nutritional, movement, sleep needs, then you've got more in the tank maybe for that work as well and you're you're at a better baseline when you arrive at a particular task or a particular scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I want to say emotional regulation because I think it's the key to everything. Um, but in actual fact, how can you emotionally regulate if you're you're operating on four or five hours sleep or if you're full of sugar? It's just it's not something that we're designed to do. And so we, the more we can build this foundation, the easier the other things are. I mean, the research does say 
in terms of looking at students, what makes a successful student, um, it is the ability to regulate emotions and it is that for adults too. But I think getting these foundations right is where I would encourage people to start because it's tangible. We can do these things. And it also mm. is, uh, it's, it's an example of or evidence that you can put yourself first. That's what it really is. And we need to build evidence and we need to build the efficacy, our own self-efficacy uh, that says, hey, you know what? I'm worth sleeping that eight hours. I'm worth actually considering what I'm going to eat and not eating on the run and thinking chocolate is an appropriate lunch. And for educators, where we when we put our students and then our families first, sometimes it's the permission and the evidence to know that we can put ourselves first that's needed so then we can do the other things. Mm, it's that fitting your own oxygen mask so that you can then help others piece. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think quite a few teachers would probably, if my experience is anything to go by, would say that they often would start a term with a full water bottle and a packed lunch uh, and all the best of intentions and then the wheels start to fall off when, when it starts to get crunchy throughout the term. Yeah, and that links back to before about when I was sharing my own journey, you know, I was doing well-being things but wasn't wasn't embodying them. And so I used to pack the lunch but that didn't mean I would eat it or I used to do it for three or four weeks but wouldn't always sustain it and get up early and then, you know, start to sleep in and not look after my body, those types of things as as the term gets busier and when we start to embody aspects of well-being, they don't become something they're doing, they become part of who we are. And so it's a non-negotiable for me to go to bed at nine o'clock. It's not even a conversation. Like that is that's just happening. It's a non-negotiable that I will spend some time on the weekend prepping my meals. Because if I don't, I don't eat well. And if I don't eat well, I don't function well. And that's my responsibility. That's on me. And so when I was teaching, you know, that's my students didn't need that, but also my family doesn't need that. And I actually, I don't need that. I'm worth eating well. And so we have to be able to understand that it's not enough to do them. We have to build them into who we are. Mm, That's a lot of James Clear's Atomic Habits, isn't it? That slowly building in your habits into something that then just becomes something that becomes non-negotiable for you. Yeah, absolutely. If we focus a bit more on the idea of school as a workplace, so principals, school leaders, those people who are looking after their staff, you talked about context being really important, knowing your context. What is the role of sort of context and culture and what might you notice if there's a bit of a culture of staff wellbeing versus where there's not? Like how does the workplace help to support a culture in which things like, you know, you've talked about workload and productivity and performance and supporting people's growth what do you see if that's going well? I think the first thing uh, that we see is staff openly talking about how they're working, how they're working and how they're feeling. And what we what the opposite of that looks like is staff gathering or connecting because they're so tired or because their to-do list is so long or because they've got so much on and then the narrative of, well, this is just how it is or, you know, my leaders won't help me and there's nothing we can do about it. And the staff where wellbeing is at the centre and where it becomes part of culture is actually where those conversations are flipped and start to drive change. And so rather than accepting those things as normal, what we have are leadership teams but also other staff who are willing to actually seek out some of those, I call it speak and seek, so we have a culture where people speak up about what those things are and and not around the staff room table, but there are forums or processes or things put in place where staff can identify perhaps where workload is too high, where they're having to work on weekends or where they feel like they're not actually doing things to a high standard because there are so many competing priorities. And then collectively 
that staff together seek out solutions. So they talk about and decide, are there some things we can stop doing? Are there some things we can start doing? Are there some things we need to press pause on? Do we need to redefine what the standard of this looks like? Do we need to work to our strengths rather than having everyone do the same thing? And so in a in a workplace where staff wellbeing is actually at the centre, at um, in a place of high priority, it's more than just what they what they're doing to perhaps do little pick me ups or address subjective well being. It becomes built into their into their decisions and the actions and the daily functioning and the strategic planning and redesigning systems processes. It's it's targeted conversations that help to identify but also address and provide solutions around things like why might we feel stressed? Why might we feel tired? Why do we feel overwhelmed? And so you're moving sort of from a culture where there might be a sense of helplessness and of voicelessness and of just this is how it is. We we lean on each other maybe, but we're not supported to a place where not only would you have the leadership team thinking about this, but actually seeking out collaboration with the staff of the school to co-design solutions. Yeah, and it's also to us as individual educators not accepting that this is just how it is. I think in some ways we uh, tend to be our own worst enemy or we we can have a self-fulfilling prophecy of teaching is busy and that's just how it is. And then we can fall into almost learnt helplessness like we're going to wait for the system to change or wait for someone else to do something about it when in actual fact we have a significant amount of autonomy ourselves and in schools as workplaces to design things differently. And what that requires is a culture and a collective staff to look for pragmatic solutions inside their control, inside what they can influence. And in schools where staff wellbeing is front and centre, that's what they're doing. That's what they're talking about. That's what we're working on together. We're redesigning what timetables might look like so non-contact time can be more productive. We're looking at how do we utilise planning, for instance, and rather than having people divide and conquer and go and do things individually, we're looking at working to strengths and um, we're being transparent and considering staff wellbeing through a lens when we make decisions. We're working on creating staff wellbeing frameworks because we have them for students, so why not have them for staff that actually support us to be able to have conversations, make decisions, have um, have discussions around where to next and use it as part of strategic planning. But that requires all of us and it requires us to move away from thinking that teachers are just busy and this is how it is. So there's a need to not accept the status quo and to know that we can do things differently. Uh, and I do think that thinking about how workplaces have changed since the pandemic and to some extent the pendulum swinging back in terms of time in the office and so on, in terms of expectations of corporates, I think schools have been a lot less flexible in terms of what thing, how things might look different. So part of it is a conversation about how might things look different, how might we still provide the education, the service, the care that we need to provide, but also think about what that might look like for our staff that's not perhaps how it's looked before. Yeah, and it can look different. We just haven't had the conversation. There are schools that are four-day weeks or four-and-a-half-day weeks, state schools that have had the conversation, that have worked for two or three years to get this into place with their community and their staff. It's not not available. You just have to be willing to do the work. And this, it's not look. It's not about looking for quick wins and quick solutions all the time. If we really want to make changes in our schools, because we have a every school is so different. We have a lot of autonomy there. We have to be prepared to do the work around it to make those things happen. And so, 
to do that, we have to have conversations like this. We have to ask what could be different. Can the, can we do this? What evidence out there do we have of other schools doing that? And how else? How would we really like it to be? You know, be creative and inventive and imagine. And rather than asking why can't we, ask can we? And rather than having the phrase of that will never happen, ask what would happen if we did? Because there are some great solutions hidden in our schools already if we give ourselves the space to just consider and play with them. So if you think about those solutions, so you've talked about thinking about how timetables work for teachers, how maybe planning time or meeting time works, what the purpose of it is, I assume. Uh, also four-day week or flexible sort of ways in which school might be on-site, off-site, flexible or whatever. Are there other examples you can think of of things schools are doing in this space that are being successful for their school? Um, yeah, um, there are some schools that I have some schools that I've been working with or that I know of that are encouraging staff to take, uh, let's call them rest breaks, uh, throughout the day. So, for example, if you have a session where you're not on class teaching, uh, you're able to go for a walk or go to the gym or go for a quick run. That doesn't mean you don't work, though. What we have to understand is that if you're taking in 45 minutes in the middle of the day to do that activity, then the trust is you're going to do the work that you need to do outside of those hours. And so it, it's about working together on that and understanding those things. But I think that's a wonderful example of how we can be more flexible with the time that is available to us. Uh, other examples include staff that have negotiated uh, later start times if they've got families. So don't teach first session and then are on site at 9.30. Or if you are off last session, then you can go and do whatever it is you need to do early. But then you may do that extra hour of work or whatever it is later on in the evening when you get home. Uh, so it's about thinking about what's in our control and what can we do and when those things are afforded to, to us what are the boundaries we need to put in place in in terms of expectations and also because I think sometimes schools may be hesitant to bring in things around flexibility but Fair Work says we should be considering flexibility and in our setting it's it, it's it's kind of new for us how we go about that uh, and so we have to be prepared to negotiate and have conversations there's another school they they are actually four and a half days for students but that other half of the day, um, the other afternoon, I think from 1pm is where they do their professional development, professional learning and team planning time. So the staff have actually negotiated a little bit of their release or their non-contact during the week and traded it to have a half day off with it. And that's when they do their late evening as well. So it requires everyone to work together and to consider how do we want to work as a staff. Great. And if you're, you know, a school leader and you're thinking, okay, well, we're here on our journey or we're not very far in terms of staff well-being or we do things in a very traditional way and maybe it's not working as it as you'd hope that it would or it can be better what might be a first step or what are the th what's the first thing that someone could do in their school do you think apart yeah, from right. obviously call you and get the wellness right. strategy in <laughs> um, apart from that ask your staff you know we can make a lot of assumptions and we can hypothesize and we can attach meaning to things that we see but we don't really know unless we ask the question and it's very common to use words like stress, burnout, overwhelm, tired, whatever those words might be, and to hear them and to want to help. But we have to be prepared to actually dig a little bit deeper and have really targeted conversations around what's causing the overwhelm. And I say this too for staff, if you want, if you want things to change, you have to be really specific so we know what to change. You know, unless you can name it, we can't do, so do something about it. And Sometimes I hear things like my leaders don't care or my leaders won't change anything or my leaders aren't doing anything, but in actual fact, a conversation hasn't been had or the language is, well, I've told my leader I'm stressed. 
But unless we know what is causing the stress, unless we can identify it, unless we can have a conversation about it, we can't do something about it. We can't change it. And so my first piece of advice to anyone, teacher, staff, team, whatever it might be, have a conversation and ask questions. Where are the pain points? First of all, what's working well? Let's know what those things are. Let's dial those up. But also where are those pain points, stress points, things that are perhaps impacting well-being and how you're functioning and how you're working? Then asking what's in my control and what's not. Like what can I influence and what can't and what are some tangible things we can start to do? I think that is really simple but powerful advice, actually ask. Yeah. So one one of the things I'm new in my school this year but it sort of became clear that there were some issues where staff were feeling like wellbeing, workload, um, value, there were some things that feel like issues as in any workplace and so we formed a staff wellbeing committee which is made up of people from all different sort of sectors of the school yep. and one of the things that, um, committee's done recently is design a survey of staff to find out what are those things that you would like, what are those things that are challenges, what does this look like for us? Because, you know, whether you're investing time or money or resources, you don't want to be throwing that at something that actually is not what people want or um, is not what they're going to value. So, and that's probably could be different from place to place too, I assume. Yeah, that and that's a really good point um, because I get asked this question a lot or sometimes people reach out and say, can you just tell me what to do with my staff? And my answer is no, because every school is different. We have to understand that every school, you know, we have a different amount of students. We have a different amount of staff. Our timetables are organised differently. Our subjects are differently. Um, the way we organise our planning is different, which in some ways is great because schools have a lot of autonomy to be able to do and design things in a way that supports them. But I think in some ways is actually perhaps a negative for us because it means that we can't systemize some things. And I think there are some things we could systemize across all schools that would really help. Um, but that means in our own context, we have to be prepared to really analyze what's going on and make changes for us, not think that there's just five things we can all do. Because when we start approaching it that way, uh, we're, we're going to be met with those band-aid answers oh just give have one staff have one um well-being week a term where you do nice activities and don't have staff meetings i understand those things are are useful and everyone enjoys that and they can be really good but cancelling a staff meeting isn't necessarily going to help teams work more productively and so we have to address the cause not just the symptom and i think the other piece that is really helpful around that is educating people on what well-being is or educating in schools what is teacher well-being and that's what I talked through before it's not just about doing self-care or doing nice things or having time to get a massage or doing less work it's actually about ensuring that we still work well awesome so Amy we're coming to the end of our time together so I'm going to move us to the final five questions which I like to call the enlightening round oh I like that Uh, the, the, the first of which is what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you I mentioned before that I was 38, but it will surprise you. And this relates to what we've been talking about um, to know that I have a significant amount of gray hair, but you can't see it right now. But that's because one of the signs of physical body signs of stress is your hair either falls out or it turns gray. And I didn't realize that. Um, And it's also one of the things that you can't undo. So you can fix digestion issues. You can fix skin issues. um, You can fix menstrual cycles, hormonal issues, but you cannot reverse gray hair. Although you can dye it. Well, you can diet. That's absolutely true. (laughs) I've given up on that, but you can do that. What about something that's currently on your desk? I actually have sitting next to me that I am going to drink is a collagen drink because I am trying to work on 
like we talked about energy and function, be more mindful of what I'm putting in my body throughout the day because I am really good at not eating. Um, and what that means is that I will just work for five hours and then crash and burn and have no energy left in the afternoon. And I'm actually working with a nutritionist who is helping me fuel my body for purpose. Uh, because even though I talk about it and I kind of, I I know how to to do it, I need that level of accountability. Hmm. So there's something there as well about seeking support as well for each of us. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I have multiple um, people who help me in my own areas of wellbeing. I have a mind, I have a mindset coach. I have a coach that helps me um, in business, but really through a lens of well-being um, and I'm working with a nutritionist and a trainer at the moment. So I'm always doing different things and seeking help as I think we can have a certain amount of knowledge, but we don't know where our gaps are and we need other people to help us identify our gaps. Mm. And I know you and I, for a little bit of a sidebar, both trained in coaching. Is there a role, do you think, in terms of what coaching can bring to this space as well? There's a huge role uh, in coaching and I think really understanding the difference between coaching and mentoring and that coaching is about self-awareness and human behaviour and I may have something in the next 12 months or so that will help in that space, helping educators, leaders really understand what it means to be a coach Um, and I think that that is going to be hugely, hugely beneficial. Uh, But I, I coach leaders myself and... What I what I can observe from the pattern of coaching different leaders over, an, I suppose, a, a period of time is that when you work with a coach, you have to be prepared to bring things to the table and discuss them. And in education, we say coach, but we really mean mentor. We want someone to tell us the answer. We want someone to tell us what to do. We want someone to identify the problem. But that's a, a true coach. That's not co- what coaching is at its core. It's really about helping you find what's within you to work through patterns, behaviors, or beliefs, or whatever it might be, so that you get that internal behavior change. Otherwise, if someone tells you what to do, you might do it once or twice, but it doesn't last. Absolutely. What about someone that inspires you in the work that you do? Oh, so many people. Um, I'm actually going to say my coach at the moment. Um, Carly from the Midas Academy, she's on Instagram if you want to look her up, but she runs something that I'm a part of called the Fulfillionaire Collective and that's really designed to help you find fulfilment in your life and to be able to look at all different pieces of your working life, of your personal life, professional life and identify do you want to do that? Does it bring you fulfilment? And a huge piece of that is unlearning and relearning in regards to things I tell myself uh, or rules I subscribe to that perhaps aren't my own. Excellent. And I don't know if this is to do with your uh, coaching uh, piece that's coming up, but what's one thing that you've got coming up that you're excited about? Oh, um, no, something different. So next year I'm going to uh, launch, or I've already started talking about it, the Teacher Wellbeing Membership. Um, so it's a membership for educators, purely based on teacher wellbeing, as the title suggests. But it's going to be a 12-month-long membership container, and each term we will run four, we will run a four-week intensive coaching container in in the middle of term because the start and the end of term are just too busy. But alongside that will be uh, a number of online modules that you can dive into and you can learn all about um, the different aspects of wellbeing that I've talked through today, as well as workbooks and a community and a whole thing because. Where do we go as educators to learn about this and have the professional development 
development we need but also with someone who understands the context of teaching because it is different it's not the same as as corporate or another workspace so I'm super excited for that actually I haven't put all the details together um, I mean it's in my head I'm just got to get it out on paper but I'm really pumped to open something that says hey teacher you know we can actually be the architects of our life both in and out of the classroom it'll require work uh, and you may have to get your hands dirty but it's totally totally worth it and possible so I'm really looking forward to that. Excellent. And finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education or educator wellbeing down to its essence, what's one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? Don't let someone else to decide for you. That's probably the biggest thing that I'm talking about at the moment is don't adopt something else because it looks pretty on Instagram or because the school next door does it. Really ask yourself, is this right for me? Is it right for our context? Thanks so much, Amy, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.